Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello folks, welcome back to another installment of the Napoleonic Wars pod and another instalment of War of 1812 Month. A quick favour to ask, if you're loving the show, can you do me a quick favour? Drop a like wherever you're listening to this, sub to make sure you can find your way back, and share it with a friend. Three really simple things that'll help me reach a much wider audience much faster. If you are particularly loving the show and you feel like giving it a stellar review, head over to Apple Podcasts where you can leave a five-star or four-star, or three-star, or two-star, or even one-star review of the show, please feel free to add a comment as well. It's another really good way for me to be able to reach out to more people, and it makes so much of a difference you wouldn't even believe. If you are a mega fan of the show, bear in mind that you can get your hands on even more of this podcast by heading over to Patreon and subscribing. For just £1 a month, you can get an additional 4 or more hours of podcasting content every single month, because this podcast has gone weekly over on Patreon. There are a whole host of other perks if you fancy other things besides. Obviously, I do understand that times are hard right now, so I totally get that many of you won't be in the mood for it. There is a much longer explanation of the different perks and what you get and all the rest of that. Um, If you've got any questions, drop me a line on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. Um, But the most important thing I would like you to do is to take the time today to go and tell somebody how much they mean to you. It's important to spread the love at any time of year and in the run up to Christmas, it's more important than ever. So be sure to tell somebody you love them and I'll catch you very soon. Hello and welcome to another instalment of the Napoleonic Wars podcast and the final instalment of War of 1812 Month. Well, I call it War of 1812 Month. It's been more like sort of War of 1812 Month and a half going on two months, but we'll ignore the sort of rubbish nomenclature and plug on regardless. I should subtitle this one 
the meeting of the dons, quite frankly. We're looking at the legacy of the War of 1812. I've quite deliberately saved this one to the end, but we have a number of dons, both literal and metaphorical, in the room this afternoon. So we'll start with the literal Don. I am joined by Don Hickey, who's a retired professor of history at Wayne State College. He's, well, to be honest, if I said that he was Professor War of 1812, that would be putting it really quite mildly. He's written The War of 1812, A Forgotten Conflict. The War of 1812, Writings from America's Second War of Independence. Glorious Victory, Andrew Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans. He has a book forthcoming called Tecumseh's War, again, kind of, well, uh, we were discussing this at the start, I was going to say kind of part of the War of 1812, but as you've just explained to me, it's a whole other thing entirely. So keep an eye out for that one. I'm sure many of you've listened to the one on the Native Americans during the War of 1812 with Josh Proven, went down a storm, you're going to want to buy that book when it becomes available. And I gather Don is also writing a book on the undeclared war with France in the 1790s. Don, welcome. Brilliant to have you on the show. You come very highly recommended, such as your reputation in this field. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And thank you for inviting me to this uh, uh, meeting. Uh, I understand our focus is going to be on the legacy of the War of 1812. And boy, for me, legacy is what wars are all about. That's how you judge their significance. So I think this is a great topic and one that is underappreciated and underdeveloped by scholars. I would strongly agree with that. That very much kind of was resonating in the back of my head um, as I was planning this whole month and thinking, how do we kind of wrap this up? So to have you on board is, is fantastic. Uh, welcome. Next up, we have Luke Reynolds, who is much loved on this show. I'm not going to lie. Uh, he's visiting assistant professor at the University of Connecticut. He's the author of Who Owned Waterloo from Oxford University Press, which is very, very, very well regarded by anybody who's picked it up, justly so. We've spoken before about this, Luke, um, and I managed to make your head hurt last time, which I was quite pleased about. I should also say Luke is acting committee secretary of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity. Yes, that was a shameless plug and a shameless ad. And no, I'm not sorry. Luke, great to see you again, my friend. How are you doing? I'm well, uh, Zach. It's great to be back and with uh, in such august company. Uh, I was prepared to be introduced last as very much the junior member of this committee uh, or this this uh, this panel. But yeah, no, it's it's a delight. And I just want to second what Don was saying about you know legacy being what war fundamentally is all about. Uh, I can't argue this. My entire book starts the day after a war ends and goes for four, nearly forty years. Um, but yeah, no, and I think this is this is a uh, this is going to be a really interesting talk. Uh, yeah, uh, just you know, in terms of the uh, you know going a little bit past a month, uh, you're, we're we're just in the um, we're in the Battle of New Orleans portion of the War of eighteen twelve month. Yeah, just uh, let's let's not really get started on New Orleans just yet. Let's <laughs> let's not. Um, I've been speaking to people this month who refuse to acknowledge that New Orleans even happened, quite frankly. Um, but we'll we'll possibly get there in in just a minute. Um, and last, but boy, by no means least, we have crowd favorite on the Napoleonic Wars pod, Alexander Mikavridze. And I say that justifiably, I can produce stats to back this up. That Kachusov episode 
is the most downloaded episode since July. So kudos right there. If you don't know already, Alex is Professor of History and Ruth Hoeing Knoll Endowed Chair at Louisiana State University in Shreveport. He's the author of hits such as Kutuzov, A Life in War and Peace, and The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History. He's recently published Berezina 1812. You and I need to sit down and have a conversation about Russia and podcasts and, and things like that. And also, not to be outdone, the first instalment of a multi-volume uh, confronting Napoleon Levin von Benigsen's memoir of the campaign in Poland, 1806-7. Alex, great to see you again. How Thank you? you so much. Always a treat to see you and to talk to you, and especially uh, this time around uh, in the company of uh, uh, esteemed uh, scholars and friends. Uh, I've known Don for quite some time, and and uh, same applies for Luke. I remember our first meeting at the conferences uh, when you were still a graduate student, and and to to see you now as a as an established scholar with a wonderful book, um, it, it's it's quite an amazing. That is very kind of you to say, uh, Alex. I think Zach, we should we should note just for just for the uh, your adoring listening public. Uh, who will never see this, but it's a shame. But uh, Alex is wearing a rather superb Christmas jumper. <laughs> this is this is very true. Um, I kind of feel that it's a shame. I'm keeping not... the Christmas spirit alive, unlike you, three Grinches yeah. there. Yeah, I, I am absolutely the embodiment <laughs> of the Grinch. Um, Scrooge has got nothing on me. Trust so me. we haven't uh, we haven't quite decorated yet, but uh, but traditionally the the miniature bust of of, of Wellington behind me uh, has its own miniature Santa hat that needs to go on. Hey hey, I I have a Christmas themed cactus. That's that's my concession <laughs> to Christmas right there. So again, folks, you won't be able to see this. We're a long way from the legacy of the War of eighteen twelve at this moment in time. We'll get back on track in just a moment. But I have a reindeer inspired cactus. I've decorated for Christmas. Chocolate. That is, it's got, it's got um, Muppet Christmas Carol vibes. I think it's the googly eyes. It, it certainly has. Right, to business. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm exhausted just with the introductions and this is going to get detailed and fascinating and it is going to make my head hurt. We're going to start with the obvious one, the military legacy. Let's get the obvious stuff out of the way. So you've got Britain humbled at sea. Let's be honest, very few people saw that one coming at the start of this conflict. You've got the US humiliated in Canada. Again, let's be honest, very few people saw that one coming at the start of the conflict, completely the inverse of what was anticipated. You then get Britain humiliated in turn at New Orleans, all of which had the potential to be really significant in terms of legacy. But what's the reality? Now, there's a nice big and vague one to start you off on. Alex, I'm going to come to you first. I don't know. Um, the way you pose the question sounds like the British uh, were losing the war. And it reminds me, uh, I think, uh, was it uh, Brian, uh, what's his name? Brian Arthur's book, that is How Britain Won the War, uh, which actually emphasizes on the uh, role of the Royal Navy's blockade of the United States in 1812 that actually uh, makes a point of uh, bringing the war of uh, Britain to, to the uh, victory to the British. So um, I think, I think um, Don and I, we, you know, we, we had the discussions about this subject a few years back um, 
the, the symposium we had here. And um, I think the legacy of the war is very is, is rather complex um, because for you know for for the incidents that you've uh, outlined in terms of a British defeat at the um, at New Orleans or American failed invasion to Canada, we also um, have to remember that in many respects this is uh, this is a war that I think in some in some scholars' opinion was the second war for independence in in that sense. Uh, I don't think the uh, uh, for the United States, the sense of independence was really threatened, but certainly the sense of what this nation is about, I think, was forged um, in, in, in this war. Um, and, and it shaped the, uh, the, leg, the, uh, the development, the path of development of the United States for the decades to come. Don, let me just pass it straight over to you. I'm very keen that you guys kind of bounce off each other uh, over the course of this one. You have written... Um, extensively on this topic. What's your sense of sort of military legacies, particularly for, let's start with the USA and try and sort of hone in on the USA. Is there a response to this conflict in terms of looking at what happens in Canada and thinking things perhaps need to change? Uh, there is. Uh, there's an old saw among 1812 scholars that everybody's happy with the outcome of the War of 1812. Americans are happy because they think they won. Canadians are happier because they know they won. And the British are happiest of all because they've forgotten all about it. Um, and except for ignoring the Indians in the old Northwest and the old Southwest who were the big users, this is not a bad assessment. Uh, the war uh, was essentially a draw on the battlefield. And the Treaty of Ghent provided for returning to the status quo antebellum. And that seemed to ratify uh, that view. What, what actually I think happened is uh, the British really were eager to sort of put this war into the past. Um, you talk about the, um, the War of 1812 and Brits will talk about the, you know, the Napoleon's invasion of Russia. That's the War of 1812 they remember. And the battle they remember from 1815 is surely not New Orleans. It's a Waterloo. So, uh, uh, but this, the British public really forgot all about this war. Uh, the government could not do that because they still face the problem after this war of defending Canada against an aggressive expansionistic and growing nation to the South. And I believe this did affect the fundamental change in British foreign policy. And in that sense, Americans could sort of, uh, if they understood, what had happened, they could appreciate this. It kind of vindicated their sovereignty because thenceforth the British, instead of uh, uh, trying to defend Canada with uh, troops and Indian allies, tried to accommodate the United States um, and uh, sort of uh, hope to encourage its expansion to the West and South rather than to the North. And I think this policy was vindicated in spite of some uh, hard knocks and war scares in the 19th century, uh, the outstanding differences between the two nations either faded away or were settled in the Treaty of Washington in 1871. And the upshot of that was an Anglo-American accord in the 1890s that turned into co-belligerency in World War I and then a full-fledged alliance in World War II that continues to this day. So I think in that sense, uh, the Americans did win the war. Um, uh, they, uh, forced a fundamental change in British foreign policy. But you could say the same for both 
Great Britain and Canada. The British, at the end of the war, held on to their maritime rate rights, which were not even mentioned in the treaty, and uh, uh, they still held Canada. And Canada was still part of the British Empire, and it paved the way for uh, Canadian independence. So the Canadians and the Brits could claim they won the war too. You I think one of the, uh, if I if I can interject on that, maybe um, uh, one of the fascinating things for me, and and, and this is um, in light of my kind of uh, recent shift in my own research from military political towards more economic political matters, is that um, the War of eighteen twelve for me is interesting for um, two things really um, uh, uh, from economic point of view. Uh, one, it it underscores a really subtle. Uh, base for the British strategy in this war that I think oftentimes is not as as emphasized. Uh, I mean, we've talked, we've talked, or you know, in, in this popular imagination, it's usually the land war that dominates. You know, the fight or or the actions on the lakes, or the, the you know the burning of the Washington D.C. or the you know the Battle of New Orleans. But I think one of the key elements in the war, especially in the, one of the key assets in the British. Uh, strategic thought was economic warfare right? conducted through naval blockades, prize courts. Um, and, and here, therefore, we, we deal with the, you know, that kind of classical scenario of a sea power uh, engaged in the, in the conflict with, uh, effectively, with the land power, right? We, United States, for all the um, uh, praise that we put on the frigates, on um, super frigates that we, we possess still is largely a, a land power. So that's kind of one, uh, I think, uh, uh, comment that I want to make, but maybe a question for us to de debate. And the second one um, uh, uh, is that I think the war is also interesting uh, because United States, for example, uh, undertook invasion of Canada without the necessary fiscal means to support it. Um, and that was uh, clear to Secretary of U.S. Treasury um, Gallatin, um, who argued that we, you know, the United States may have means to wage the war for a year, but maybe a year and a half, but not beyond that. And these kind of warnings that you know, waging war is not just about uh, men shooting each other, but it's also finding means to sustain vast armies in the field. Uh, that that warning was ignored by Madison and and most crucially by, shall I say, land hungry Congress, <laughs> um, that uh, supported it. And we know that by 1814, the United States was effectively running out of money. Um, one of the interesting elements in this story um, is the fact that the fall of Washington uh, prompts the uh, run on U.S. banks. Um, uh, so, so I think that economic side is is quite interesting for us to discuss as well. Uh, can I uh, add a point on the British Naval War? Um, you know, Americans like to remember those single ship uh, engagements they won. Um, they were strategically mostly unimportant and the British in the end gave as good as they got in those uh, single ship engagements. Uh, but really this was a vindication of British naval power. Um, they use their Navy to supply, resupply and send men to Canada to de defend it. They blockaded the American coast, which had a devastating effect on the American economy and American public finance, so much so that the US government 
defaulted on the national debt in New England in 1814. And in spite of the successes of American privateers earlier, early in the war, the British really did a pretty good job with convoys later on in protecting their trade. So all in all, this looks like a great, to me, a great vindication of British sea power in shaping uh, the course and outcome of a war. If I can just dwell on, on that for a moment, because the you're absolutely right in this, this sense that when we talk about the, the naval element of the War of 1812, the fact that the blockade works is often kind of pushed to one side and, and ignored. And instead, we do focus on these single ship actions, which have that sort of shock and awe impact in this sense of this is the post-Trafalgar Navy. Surely you would expect them to wipe the floor with anything because that's very much the, the narrative that the British love to spin, regardless of any realities um, that may get in the way of that. So how as a nation does Britain seek to address, if you like, redress the balance, downplay those unexpected losses against the US Navy and kind of make the argument that no, you know, Royal Britannia is is valid as a, a means of um, reference when it comes to Britain's Navy during this period. Luke, do you want to lead on that? Yeah, I do. I want to jump in on that uh, and a few other, other points along the way. Um, so first of all, yeah, you know, th there are the legacy of these great single ship combats, right? The, there's the fact that the U.S. Constitution is still this legend, the USS Constitution, not the U.S. Constitution. That's also a legendary piece of work. But the USS Constitution is this legendary, still active ship, right? They still, we still, the U.S. Navy still trains on it. But this is what, you know, we've got a six frigate building program that produce these incredible super frigates against the world's largest military navy at the time. That single ship combats aren't gonna cut it, right? In terms of long-term legacy. So yeah, we have these moments and you know, you have, um, you know, the constitution knocking seven um, bells out of the HMS warrior and things like that. Um, but we, the, the, the numbers, as, as Alex was pointing out, the numbers just aren't there. Right, economically and all of that, we have a blockade that functionally, as as noted in your in your previous uh, podcast, the um the the most important battle, right? The the British naval blockade teaches the Americans about the blockade that becomes the strategy, the Anaconda Plan, the strategy in the Civil War. So the British are teaching the Americans their trade to a certain extent. But let's let's actually take your your question, right? Let's let's take your hypothesis here. Um, Britain humbled at sea uh, and Britain humiliated in turn at New Orleans. I'll leave aside the US humbled in Canada for a second. If we take those as red, who's taking advantage of them, right? The war ends in 1815 and, okay, let's just take the Britain humbled at sea for a second. Who's gonna, who's gonna take advantage of that? Uh, the US have just come out of a war with the UK, so they're not gonna go right back into one, especially given the economic standpoints. Um, what French Navy at that point? What Spanish Navy at that point? Uh, you know, there's there's no one there to to take advantage of this, right? So that's I think that's part of what's what's driving the fact that this is not a, a huge sea change, right? Uh, no pun intended, um, because there is no one to to take advantage of it. Uh, and in terms of the land war, if I can 
address a topic that we actually talked about last time I was on this. Britain, uh, as you know, as Don pointed out, very, very conveniently forgets about the War of 1812. And they've got a tailor-made opportunity for that when a few months after New Orleans, they get handed the Battle of Waterloo. Not that anyone got handed that battle, you know, several tens of thousands died. Um, but that becomes that sort of that slots in and that gives them everything they need. Uh, and we even see some cases early on of, uh, you know, sort of uh, commemorations of Waterloo that are tied to 1812 as well, right? The, 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 it's not just the French symbols that are humbled, it's the American Eagle that's also humbled in that. Uh, I think Don has a really good point about sort of Britain directing uh, the United States to the South and to the West in the aftermath of this, right? You know, this flows directly in to the First Seminole War, which leads to the Adams-Onis Treaty, which gives the United States Florida, for better or for worse. Um, and, and then we move on, you know, that sort of snowballs, right? But I think the Americans, especially in the aftermath of this, are, yes, there's a huge surge in popularity. There's a huge surge in sort of nationalism and all of this and the identity and, you know, a second bloody nose or a second black eye for John Bull and all of uh, the second war of American independence. But the people in Washington, the people who are reoccupying their freshly burnt buildings are not stupid. And they're fully aware that the two times that they've beaten Britain, Britain has had a lot of other things on its plate, right? Both times it's also been at war with France. Both times it's been heavily involved one way or another in a war in Spain. Both times it's been involved in a war in India. And I think there is a sort of feeling of, okay, if we if we try this during at a time when Britain is at peace with everyone else, this might have a different outcome. And I think they're that's another reason you know, they're, they're they're pushing to the south on this one. Uh, so yeah, that's just sort of some some thought process to to get involved in this. Um, but I think Alex's point, especially about the economics, is is hugely important. Right, you know, uh, we we have this. We all live in a world where where America is a huge economic powerhouse. But at this point, we're effectively seeing the reverse of what's going on post World War II. Right, you know, America's Britain's getting involved in Suez, and America says, "Stop this, or we will break your economy." Uh, and at this point in 1812, in the aftermath, it's the reverse. Britain is sort of like, "We can just fundamentally shatter." your national debt, all of your reserves, without functionally doing much in the way of military action. Alex, you look poised and, and pensive at this oh God. point in time. No, I'm, I'm just imbibing the, the wisdom that uh, Don and Luke uh, are sharing. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, uh, I think, Luke, when you were talking about the trophies in that sense, uh, it reminded me of uh, 1833 when uh, Britain sent uh, George Cockburn, right, the man responsible for essentially burning the White House, to head the North American station. And, of course, his flagship was HMS President, the very ship that they captured <laughs> during the war in Normans. <laughs> Not the most diplomatic of moves, one feels. Um, no, I would uh, say it's a subtle message, right? Uh, Don, what do you think? 
Well, yeah, that would sort of run counter to my th thesis that the British were trying to accommodate the United States. Um, there, I might mention as an aside, there are so many myths, uh, particularly in the United States, but also in Canada and Great Britain that sort of feed the public memory of this war. Um, and the, the biggest is probably on the side of the United States that they actually won this war. I mean, they look at the Battle of Lake Champlain, the defense of Fort McHenry, and especially New Orleans, and they uh, imbibe this notion that the British were actually trying to recolonize the United States, which is sheer nonsense, and that Jackson's victory at New Orleans prevented the British from seizing a large chunk of the Southwest, sheer nonsense. But that turns the battle into, uh, you know, the sort of battle that wins the War of 1812. And that was commemorated that date, January 8th, in a lot of cities around the United States for a half century thereafter. I think it faded a bit as a result of the Civil War, uh, lost some of its appeal. Uh, but uh, boy, oh boy, that battle uh, certainly loomed large in the public memory for uh, uh, shaping the how remember how Americans chose to remember the outcome of this war. We've got nods around the room, and I want to stay with Jackson for the moment, if we may, um, because frankly, we have to talk about Jackson with in all of this. Is the war effectively the event that we should blame for Jackson's rise and all that follows with that, in the sense that he can, as you're kind of speaking to here play on this idea, look, I'm the one who beat the British. I'm the one who inverted commas won the War of 1812 because I humbled the Brits at New Orleans and therefore, you know, clearly I have the leadership capabilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, obviously I'm, I'm being simplistic in this view, but is the War of 1812 kind of the kernel from which Jackson is able to kind of grow outwards? That's a great question. And uh, Jackson had uh, successful, four successful battles in uh, the Creek War in the Southwest. And that really made his military reputation at the time. Now, whether without the Battle of New Orleans, he could have parlayed that into a uh, presidential campaign is an interesting uh, question. I suspect he could have, but uh, who knows? We're talking about counterfactual history there. Yeah, I, I think I, I would agree with Don. Um, and maybe to kind of to play devil's and maybe advocate, kind of push strongly that he could have, in the sense that, as Don pointed out, um, his reputation is made uh, before on New Orleans and fighting creeks, but after New Orleans, he also distinguished himself fighting Seminoles. Um, uh, he briefly, um, right, I think, served as the governor of Florida, yeah, he did. Uh, then ran to Senate. So I think in that sense, those conflicts, uh, uh, even without New Orleans, I think, uh, would have made his reputation uh, certainly strong, strong enough to run for Senate and maybe even for president. But of course, you know, being a national hero after 1815 um, added a luster that uh, brought him uh, presidency. Uh, one, one quick note on Jackson. In 1798, during the Quasi War with France, he was actually a U.S. Senator. And I think he decided very quickly he did not enjoy being in legislative bodies. 
Uh, he was bored and I think uh, served only part of a term and uh, left and returned to uh, Tennessee. Yeah, to Supreme Court, I believe, right? Uh, I guess I guess serving uh, serving in Supreme Court was uh, <laughs> more fun. Well, actually, I think he did that earlier. Served uh, they, people loved him as a judge because he would just reach a decision in sixty seconds and say, "Okay, here are the issues. Here's what I'm doing." <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> and that, that, was just, that was that was great. Uh, it wasn't quite the Supreme Court, but he was sort of the authority. Um, in uh, Tennessee. It seems to me that was in the 1790s, but, but I've really forgotten the chronology. I, I thought like he served in the Supreme Court until 1804, um, I, I thought. Uh -huh. Okay, well, you may be right. I, I, I may stand corrected on that. That's a lovely but he's a, uh, We have at the Knoll Collection, we have an interesting uh, uh, print of, of, uh, of Jackson. Uh, it's uh, one of the uh, kind of le uh, less... Uh, popular uh, um, portrayal of him because if you look at his all his portraits um, he's kind of a stern looking guy um, but on the print that we have uh, he's with the glasses because he was short-sighted and uh, but he hated to be portrayed with glasses since it kind of detracted from that masculine image that uh, I guess he was uh, you know the ruggedness of the man uh, and and uh, I, every time I mean, it's hanging on our wall, and every time I pass by, I kind of say hi <laughs> to the good old Andrew. <laughs> we do have a daguerreotype of him, um, and it is just terrific. It's a year before he died, and uh, he is just this grizzled but hard-edged old man, and you can see what he really looked like. Uh, the portraits don't always portray him quite in in the same way, but I I just I think that's my favorite uh, daguerreotype or photograph in American history, certainly of a U.S. president. Luke, let me come to you on the Jackson discussion. What's your take on all of this? I, you know, it's it is there's a we've you know his his career is uh, has just been outlined beautifully in terms of of functionally almost all all of the uh no actually yes all three branches of the US government right we've got legislative judiciary and executive um or, look new orleans helps absolutely uh i think it is one of the driving forces that then throws him you know that that persuades monroe to send him to georgia to command in the first seminal war um but there's so much before and there's so much after yes it does absolutely help but it's it you know it's it... okay we take we take salamanca we take victoria we take Badajoz, we remove waterloo does does wellington still become prime minister right it's that same thing it's one in a series um it definitely helps it definitely gives him a boost it definitely makes him a more national figure um I would argue, actually, if you want an interesting sort of a side take on this, and I'm sure Don will will be will be better at at, at this than than I am, because I'm not in in the U.S. political sphere as much. Um, but um, if you want to take of how 18 War of 1812 helps him more than anything, it's that he becomes the personification of multi-party democracy at the end of the era of good feelings that the War of 1812 ushers in. So it, there's that gap that he then steps into as the populist figure, as the everyman, um, and as the sort of the man of the people that is then, of course, 
betrayed by the aristocrats of the Northeast with the corrupt bargain and, and all of that. Uh, so the War of 1812 provides that opening. You know, we're talking years down the line, but, you know, the War of 1812 fundamentally is one of the crucial things that breaks the Federalist Party and ushers in that era of good feelings. And then it ta and then Jackson is at the other end of that with the rise of populism. So there's the non-military approach. Keep in mind too that Jackson, after the War of 1812, enjoys a reputation almost uh, of, of that of George Washington. He's probably, he is just such a preeminent military figure in the public mind. And that, uh, as much as anything else, I think, propels him into the presidency. Uh, I wanted to kind of actually, I'm, I'm glad, Don, you, you kind of uh, interjected and, and because it, it uh, I think, leads to my comment in that uh, of, of comparing uh, Wellington and, and Jackson, not necessarily as military leaders, but as, as men who benefited from their military reputations to be to embark on a political career. Uh, and, and reach to the top of, of their political establishments. Uh, and uh, interestingly, they, they deal with the same kind of challenges, uh, one of which will be the, uh, the franchise reform movement. I think the United States, we have what the, the election by common man movement. And, and, and in Britain, we have the great reform bill, which I think Wellington uh, uh, opposed. And, and, um, and, and I think there is this kind of, uh, interesting comparison that can be drawn between the two men who uh, emerged from these conflicts with their reputation, with stellar reputations. I am conscious that whilst we could continue on this for quite some time, it's now 35 minutes in and we've done question one. So, um, and 1A, and 1A, give yourself okay, credit. Okay, yes, Zach. yes, yes. I mean, in fairness, we did do 1A as well, but we, and granted, we have touched on elements of subsequent questions. Um, but bearing in mind that I Zach, would be... you as you specialize in military discipline. Get out your I, just because whip. I specialize in it. <laughs> just because I specialize doesn't mean I'm good at you know practicing what I preach. That's what happens. See, <laughs> thirty-five Absolutely. minutes on one question. I've got. Is, to the, say. is that why? Is that why the invitation to come on your podcast always comes with instructions for creating your own cat of nine tails, the way they used to do it in the Royal Navy? <laughs> I've got to say, this is the first time one of my guests has actively encouraged me to break out the whip. Um, <laughs> things that I didn't expect at the start of this episode. <laughs> it's Christmas, Zach. It's a time for miracles. This is true. Um, right, let's try and right, bring... Question number two. I'm ready. Yes. I'm excited. <laughs> yes, let's, let's try and bring normality back to this. Um, we touched a bit already on, on US-UK relations. Don, you've particularly spoken to this already. Um, you've got this kind of, this question mark hanging over the USA. It strikes me from what I've read, and granted I'm nowhere near as knowledgeable as you three on this, that can the USA really um, demonstrate that it is a separate entity and not sort of a... Um, uh, a UK by other means, you know, it's sort of this sense that is there that chance that it will just kind of slide ever closer back towards the UK with the passage of time, which is certainly a, a school of thought within some um, in, in Britain during this period, you know, okay, they're going to have their experiment and then it'll all go wrong, like it did for us when we tried republicanism, and then, you know, hey, they'll come back to us in the end. But 
the War of 1812 strikes me as a sort of uh, a changing, uh, almost a, a sea change within that kind of philosophy. And perhaps you disagree with me on that, but whichever way you wish to argue that, how long does it take for some sort of semblance of cordiality to creep back into relations? Because it's worth bearing in mind that the USA declares war for you know, legitimate reasons of grievance, in some cases, there are other things that compound that. So how long does it take to kind of just turn the temperature down and, and see that cordiality return? Well, that's a great question. Um, the, the, the problem with uh, the two Anglo-American wars is they leave this undercurrent of Anglophobia in the United States. And uh, it's based on what, what you have in all kinds of wars, you know, all the, the atrocities, the, uh, uh, the bad feelings. And then that's reinforced by the Irish immigrants into the United States in the course of the 19th century. So in a way, it persists well into the 20th century when, you know, that time, the, uh, was it the mayor of Chicago who said, if the, some British official, I forget, was it the crown uh, Prince, somebody was coming to America, and he says, well, if he comes to Chicago, I'm punching him in the nose. Uh, but uh, I do think uh, the, the issues fade away, and after the war scare caused by the Trent Affair in the Civil War, um, you end up with the Treaty of Washington, which resolves a lot of outstanding differences. Uh, differences. And then by the 1890s, you have uh, a genuine Anglo-American accord, and I believe uh, by the uh, 1900, Americans finally realized Canada's not going to become part of the American Union. It is still widely believed, I think, into the 1890s. But I think around 1900, there was sort of this perception, well, Canada is probably here to likely to remain an independent nation. And I would say that really marks the U.S. as a satisfied nation on the continent and really overseas. Um, we had acquired an empire, an overseas empire, in the course of the 19th century. I think by 1900, we were pretty much satisfied uh, with our territorial limits, both at home and abroad. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, the, the sarcastic Brit in me, uh, has no right to say that, you know, it, it, it took America a while to get satisfied in terms of territorial expansion, because of course the Brits keep doing that well into the sort of the 1940s. But it is interesting that it takes quite a long time for America to kind of 
feel satisfied why and, and this is a long way from the war of 1812 but i'm just curious and i want to pick up on this right why does it take that long for america to sort of feel content and secure well you have to remember that throughout the 19th century the united states was an aggressively expansionistic nation at least on the continent um, and uh, then in the second half of the 19th century overseas uh, the acquisition of samoa and hawaii and uh, uh, this interest in developing a, an empire that stretched from the Western Pacific to the Caribbean. And I think sort of the climax of this is the Spanish-American War. The United States emerges from that war with Guam and the Philippines and the Far East and Puerto Rico and effective control over Cuba in the Caribbean. I think that just sort of marks the end of this, uh, this phase. Uh, Americans, uh, why we became a satisfied nation, I'm not sure I can answer that question. Uh, maybe some of our other uh, uh, guests here can, uh, can address that. Luke, I'm gonna throw it over to you on both counts here, both in terms of cordiality with US-UK relations and in terms of that feeling of security. What are your thoughts? Uh... I mean, the, we'll start with the security one. Uh, I think I think the big drive is, as as Don was saying, is uh, is expansionism and is especially continentalism, right? That 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 belief that uh, that America will not be that the United States will not be complete until it reaches from the Atlantic to the Pacific, right? And that I mean, this is not a new idea. If you look at the if you look at the the um, the colonial charters of places like uh, Virginia, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. They all claim that area all the way to the Pacific, and that causes a lot of problems within the United States in the aftermath of the uh, American Revolution uh, and all of that. And I think that that is definitely part of it, right? And, I, I, and in that case, there's there's a bit of me that's sort of going, okay, well, who can blame them? They've just watched Britain, they've just watched Europe descend into a quarter century of war over borders, fundamentally. I, yeah, I get their desire to not have any there. I mean, obviously there's the border with British North America that becomes Canada. There's the border to the South with uh, Mexico. Uh, although of course they get to basically decide that with the um, Mexican-American war, uh, the most unjust war ever waged by a stronger country against a weaker one in the words of Ulysses S. Grant. Um, but I think I think that is that is it. I, in terms of the, the um, the relations between the USA and the UK, uh, you know, I think Don has laid out the 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 fundamental dates and the fundamental pieces of paper, right? And and there's there's some of that in the middle as well, even before the uh, the Washington Treaty about deciding uh, the borders with with British North America, that that line that you know sort of some of the middle ones, not not to the full uh, to the full extent, that are in that. There's also the fact that. Um, you know, within within 10, 20 years, uh, it's becoming clear that the United that the UK will uh, will at least respect the written word of the Monroe Doctrine, right? Yeah, they're going to be absolutely investing in uh, gold and silver and and diamond mines in South America, but it is that sort of classic informal empire. We're not going to see red coat boots on the ground. We're not going to see the Union flag flying. Um, we're instead going to use the the, the pound uh, to do what we need to do. 
you know, and I think that is uh, that is telling, you know, sort of once, you know, Don Don mentioned this again, right? There's that there's that American myth belief that that Britain was trying to reconquer America, which is completely wrong. Um, and I think as more and more people sort of come to the realization that a either a they don't want to or b they can't, depending on which side of the spectrum you're on, then things start to normalize. Um, yeah, Alex, I'm keen to bring you in as well on this. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll I, I agree with Luke and and, and Don, and maybe kind of um, eschewing a large conflict that they've. Uh, emphasized. I do want to maybe uh, mention that uh, post-1815 period is, is a period full of, um, yes, normalization between the United States and, and Britain, but also kind of continuing uh, uh, um, uh, tensions, especially tensions in the North um, um, uh, over the issue of demarcation of the border. Uh, the Treaty of Ghent, in many respects, kind of laid out the problems, but it also um, set uh, a mechanism for for finding solution to them, and one of them was surveying, right? Uh, kind of figuring out where the true border ran and and uh, the decisions to be taken by the mixed commission. However, oftentimes this process um, did not work, and it, it kind of brings to my mind incidents um, such as, for example, the 1839 so-called Arustuk War. Um, uh, I believe uh, it's also known as the Lumberjack War, right? Over the issue of the uh, trade uh, uh, harvesting rights to timber and farmland in, uh, in the borderland. There is this fascinating incident in 1837 uh, over the ship uh, Caroline and the shooting of a United States citizen by escaped um, Canadian, uh, shall I say, refugees or rebe rebels, however you want to put it. And of course, most famously, um, in 1840, what, um, 41, I guess, um, the, uh, the McLeod uh, trial, which was derived from Caroline incident um, and involved the sheriff, Canadian uh, sheriff who was involved in the incident in, in Caroline and was involved in the shooting of that American citizen. Uh, well, that trial uh, actually became an, 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 a major uh, crisis in U.S.-British uh, relations to the degree that uh, Palmerston actually threatened uh, war against the United States if um, ultimately uh, they if they didn't repatriate um, uh, McLeod. So uh, this is to kind of um, to point out that the relation, it, it took a while for the relationships to really normalize, right? Um, of course, the, the the prospect of an all-out war was never really there, but there were a lot of problems in the relationship, a lot of my, you know, incidents and, and um, you know, border conflicts that I think still overshadow these relations for the years to come. Um, I mean, it, this is, the things that I've talked were on the Eastern Front, right, um, on the Northeastern Front. But if we look even to Northwest, uh, we know that there were disagreement over the Oregon Territory, over Washington, British Columbia. Uh, there was uh, the uh, infamous Pig War of 1859, right, and then Puget Sound. So uh, this, this um, I think, Anglo-British relations remain complicated um, for, for the rest of the century. Let me stay with that sort of 
scope for slightly or even less than slightly domineering British influence, if we may, and take a quick detour to look at the UK's increasingly passionate advocacy for the abolition of the slave trade. Something which, if you look at the diplomatic papers, as I've done for the last few months, you increasingly get this sense that Britain tries to ram this down people's throats. You know, Britain takes this as the way forwards and everybody else is going to do it the British way. Um, whether or not you want to kind of wrap that up into Pax Britannica is a whole other debate that you could do another show on, so we'll leave that for now. Um, now, the US clearly has a very substantial slave population at this point in its history, and it takes a very bloody conflict for the USA to resolve how it's going to deal with questions of slavery. Um, so how much does Britain's push on that issue end up sort of rankling with the USA? Can I jump in on this? Please do. Uh, so it, this is, when you talk about slavery, you almost have to talk about two United States, right? Uh, the North is, is especially the radical abolitionists, are looking at what Britain is doing and pointing at it and saying, see, we can do this. This is a model, right? This is a way forward. Um, whereas in the South, there's that weird dichotomy of at one point there's that, wait, they're abolishing the peculiar institution. This is bad. And at the same time, Britain is our number one, uh, one, number one purchaser of cotton. Right? There's that entire genuine belief at the start of the Civil War that Britain is going to intervene because exclusively because of the cotton trade. Right, There's that whole thing. Um, so it, I think it, it fundamentally does depend. There's also, of course, the, the, the fascinating complex social side that you get once the Fugitive Slave Act is passed, where British North America becomes the goal for escaped slaves. Right, And Britain suddenly goes, especially in the minds of African-Americans, goes from any form of the old enemy to the, the beacon of freedom, right? There's that very fascinating change. I do also want to just throw this out there as, as, as sort of a minor fact, um, and it's worth, meant, worth remembering. Uh, the, the British, during the War of 1812, the, what becomes the, the Chesapeake campaign, right, in the Potomac, and eventually ends up in the burning of Washington and all of that, that is actually the single largest military emancipation of slaves before the Civil War. The British raiding Virginian plantations and things like that. Was it moral? Was it a moral quest? No, it was purely military. It was like, let's, let's mess with their supply lines. Let's mess with their workforces. But it is worth noting. And I think that does also feed into the other side of this for the British, which is, uh, and I, I don't think you're going to fight me on this one, Zach, the British to this day, but especially in the 19th century at the peak of empire, love having a moral high ground position. And the abolition of slavery is a perfect one of those, right? It shows that they are the enlightened power, that they are leading from the front and all of that. Uh, and I think that's one of the real driving forces behind this. Yeah, I would not uh, if, argue if, if that the savior complex is, is significant in terms yeah. of how the British love to construct themselves arguably to this day, but certainly during the 19th century. Don, go for it, please. Um, a, a couple of points I would make. Number one, the United States ab abolished the slave trade about the same time the British did. The issue was whether we were going to allow British warships to uh, board American merchant vessels that were engaged in the slave trade off the African coast. 
And the problem there was Americans are still very sensitive about the issue of impressment. I don't think that was a major issue. The British did indeed abolish slavery in the West Indies in the uh, 1830s. They did not do so in other parts of the British Empire, most notably India, but nevertheless, that sort of gave them the high moral ground on the slavery issue. Uh, and the other thing was the American South was just infuriated that they never got compensation. Well, they did eventually, but it took years and years to get compensation for the slaves uh, that the British uh, removed and liberated at the end of the American Revolution and the War of 1812. In fact, there was a widely held myth in the South that the British actually re-enslaved uh, those uh, uh, liberated slaves. The British took that charge very seriously, investigated it, and I think uh, uh, proved it was just plain wrong. But these were sort of marginal issues, I think, in the larger framework of Anglo-American relations. Yeah, I think um, Don uh, mentioned a really important issue here um, uh, on, on the right of search that the British Navy asserted for, for so long, um, and, and that being uh, kind of one of the um, uh, thorns in, in the uh, Anglo-American um, relations. Um, I do want to kind of mention one uh, tidbit, and that is that, um, as, as Don pointed out, the United States um, technically participated in the slave trade suppression because starting in 1819, Africa Squadron uh, was part of the uh, U.S. Navy. It did uh, participate in the blockade of the uh, West African coastline. Um, and um, uh, especially, um, I think, 18, after, after the uh, with, uh, Webster, Webster-Ashburn Treaty of 1842, one of the provisions of that treaty was indeed the U.S., uh, commitment to the ending of the slave trade. And of course, the, um, the squadrons, um, uh, I think, increased in size and, and, uh, uh, in 43, and, and it stayed so until 61. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the commanders leading is, is none other than Matthew Perry of, of later uh, Japan fame, right? infamy or fame, however you look at it. I think the, um, the problem is, um, is, is, you know, Luke already mentioned several issues, and of course, Don did, and I want to mention one, and I think this is the idea I, I, I uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think picked up from um, reading Alan Booth's um, classic article on, on the issue, um, who pointed out that many of the U.S. secretaries of the Navy of this time were actually Southerners, or they were what we now call Southern sympathizers. And that meant that um, under their uh, leadership, um, there was no real actual, you know, there was a commitment, but there was no actual uh, um, push to, um, to fund suppression of slave trade to the degree that it was needed. So Booth, for example, shows that, um, uh, that uh, oftentimes the con congressional funding necessary for the Africa squadron was not there, or in some cases they, they would authorize the use of the ships that they knew were unseaworthy. So on paper, the ships were there, but in actuality, they were not. And so, um, and, and that's a, a kind of interesting side story of, 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 of the U.S. approach to um, slave, uh, the suppression of the slave trade. And I think Dawn hit the point, uh, and that is that um, the private interests, I think, drove much of it um, rather than, you know, and the United States kind of um, had a less as fair approach to it. 
I want to pick up on something else that we've talked about over the course of this already, which is the Treaty of Ghent. And every time I think of Ghent, my mind goes back to an argument made by Jeremy Black, which is fundamentally that the end of the Napoleonic Wars was key because Britain was a feared military power. And so this prospect of you know, the, the Waterloo Army, inverted commas, or something built around that could then return British troops to North America, he suggests, strengthens Britain's hand at the negotiating table and vice versa. That, you know, this, this prospect that you can take troops from North America and then bring them back to the continent is actually a really important thing in terms of focusing minds when they're sitting down and talking about the Congress of Vienna. How, how far would you agree, I guess? You know, is that fair? Uh, not at all <laughs> for me. Um, the, I don't think there was any fear in the United States after 1815 that the British were going to send more troops to America and that we better be careful. In fact, in the wake of New Orleans, it, I think the widely held view was, well, we whipped them good that time and we can do it again. Bring them on. Um, you know, by then, remember, Americans, they forgot, they, they forgot the, all the setbacks in the war. They forgot what caused the war. What they remembered was how the United States had single-handedly at New Orleans defeated the conqueror of Napoleon and the mistress of the seas. So I see very little fear driving uh, uh, American, uh, either uh, the public or even our foreign policy that the British posed a threat in North America to us. It was rather the other way around, the British fear that we posed a threat to Canada. Alex, let me, let me get your thoughts both on that yeah, and also I, the I agree European with, perspective. Yeah, I agree with Don, um, uh, especially um, considering the what was at stake in Europe and post-Napoleonic post reconstruction. Um, I think the British interests were more aligned to dealing with those issues rather than um, trying to to prolong this conflict with with, with the United States, um, um, you know, let's not forget that Britain has uh, acute problems domestically um, after 1815. Um, prolonging the war um, no, would not have would not have been uh, popular. Um, uh, we know there were massive mass um, outbreaks of. Uh, Disturbances in 18, what, 1811, right, 1812. There was, there's a fascinating study on the peace party or peace movement in, in UK uh, throughout the Napoleonic Wars. And, and, and it is quite uh, quite vocal um, towards the end of, of Napoleonic Wars. So I think even domestically, um, it would not have been popular to, to send, you know, the, the Williams and Johnnies overseas to fight in a, in a war that was un, unclear to what purpose it would, it would have been. Um, so, um, no, I, 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 I don't believe there was a desire or, or, or uh, even in the British circles to do that. Does that also translate, just to stay with you for a second, Alex, into the, the discussions around Vienna? You know, this idea that, you know, Britain's the dominant force because it tries to position itself as the army that, and, you know, we go back to, to Luke and I'll bring you in on this in a second, Luke. Um, you know, Britain, Wellington, vanquisher of Napoleon at Waterloo, 
PS, yes, the Prussians were also very helpful, but the British are always going to, to push the British side of things. From what you, you say there, it's just as feasible that, you know, this idea that there's, there's massive war weariness, right? That's what we're looking at here. Um, and Black's kind of suggestion that Britain has the ability to threaten that much more and therefore get more out of Vienna because it can throw its weight around, because if another war came around, who knows what could happen with Wellington at the head of a, a British army. Uh, would you say that you know, your, your arguments in relation to um, a disinclination to continue the War of 1812 also actually translate in terms of you know, Britain not really wanting to push its luck that much and potentially spark a confrontation on the European mainland? Um, threatened, sure, uh, but as, as Don pointed out, in order for a threat to work, uh, there has to be a willingness to believe on the other side. And, and again, Don mentioned that um, Americans were not particularly uh, threatened by, by such prospect. Um, uh, you know, again, uh, Britain is more engaged in a post-Napoleonic uh, settlement in Europe, um, not the least because it is an architect one of the key architects of that uh, settlement. Um, Beatrice de Graaf has a wonderful, and, and Christine Haynes had wonderful studies on post-1815 uh, security systems. And of course, uh, Britain uh, is, is a crucial element in, in this, not, not, um, not only because it provides the kind of, you know, the, the hegemonic presence there, but, um, you know, British troops are part of the occupational force in France. British banks are, uh, are tied to, uh, to the uh, security arrangements or economic arrangement, banking arrangement necessary to ensure that France pays back the reparations. This is really where the big issues are uh, at stake, not um, in, in the boondocks of uh, Anglo-Canadian uh, frontier. Uh, as exciting as, as, you know, as that area is, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's 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 important enough into the British establishment at, at this stage, and of course, I mean, think about the prospects of opening up of um, Latin America, right? Um, if 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 there is any kind of big lessons out of Napoleonic Wars, it's, it's the opening up of this former Spanish and Portuguese colony, or uh, about to be former Spanish Portuguese colonies. Uh, to the to the British interests, it's of course about the British Imperial Project in India. So there is a much again in a large scheme of things, um, United States has as much as it might hurt our sensibilities, American sensibilities. We are not necessarily um, that high on on that totem pole. Don, what do you think? Well, um, I I basically agree. I mean, I, the the you have to go back the War of 1812 was a sideshow to the British. And by the time uh, they were liberated, freed from the Napoleonic Wars with Napoleon's first exile in April of 1814, the British people were war weary. Now there was a lot of talk in the press about really sticking it to the United States now that they had the military and naval assets to do it. But that sort of disappears by the fall of 1814. And the British are really war weary. They've been at war for two decades. They're tired of the war taxes. 
they're tired of all of the demands that war make upon a nation and a people. They just want this war over. And uh, that's why they're ultimately willing to agree to peace on the basis of the status quo antebellum. And I think they were just absolutely delighted to finally finish off this war without surrendering maritime rights, without surrendering Canada. That's, that's good enough for them. They're happy with that. Luke, let me yeah. bring you in at, at this stage. You know, your thoughts on Ghent within the context of Vienna and Vienna within the context of Ghent. Uh, this is getting dangerously European Union-esque. Um, no, I, yeah, I just want to, I, I, you know, basically add to what both Alex and Don are saying, right? There's a huge pressure to end this war. We've got 20, 25 years, a, quarter, a, a full quarter century of, of war weariness. We have, we have to remember, this is a time when Britain especially, but a lot of Europe, a lot of the world, and the United States, crucially, um, do not have that standard belief in standing armies. We ramp up for war, we ramp down afterwards, right? And there's a huge pressure in the United Kingdom to get, to, to stop spending this colossal amounts of money on the army, on the Navy. Something that we're, that they're still experiencing uh, huge amounts of criticism on during the, the army of occupation, right? There's all of these things. Like why are we spending all of this money to prop a Catholic king on the throne of, 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 um, of France and all of that. So there's this huge pressure to disband and I think, you know, not have an army, not have a war going on. And I think Don's dead on right, sort of like status quo antebellum in the United States, which is a sideshow to this. We get to keep Canada. Um, you know, there's, uh, we're seeing some, we're seeing some nice bits of sort of uh, Canadian identity start to emerge. I, you know me, Zach, I have to mention identity, national identity at some point in any, every one of these podcasts. Um, you know, that is, that is a drive. We've talked and we've brought in, you know, you, you brought in Black. Alex, of course, mentions uh, DeGraff and Haynes, both of whom well worth reading and superb. I actually want to bring, I want to throw Hugh Davies in on this mix. Because Davies has this argument that I've always found very compelling, uh, that Britain looks at this, looks at Vienna and looks at Paris after Vienna, and sort of says, okay, we've been at this for a quarter century. What are our priorities? Our priorities are, yes, obviously fixing what's going on at home, the rise of radicalism. Let's, you know, let's uh, let's try and prevent, you know, prevent another Peterloo, all of that. Um, and it's our empire, it's India, it's things like that. And Davies argues that they've come to the conclusion that if they want a proper expansionist blue water empire, there has to be stability and peace in Europe because otherwise they're gonna get sucked into that and that's gonna take all of their resources. So part of what drives Vienna and Paris, and I would argue drives Ghent or Washington or however you wanna put this, is let's, let's keep this peaceful, let's keep this simple, let's get peace and then let's concentrate on India, let's concentrate on all of that. And within a few decades, they're in a place where their old enemies, Britain and France, are helping them in the second Anglo-Chinese Opium Arrow War, depending on how you want to how you want to name that conflict. And I'm aware that that naming of that conflict can get you probably banned from certain portions of the globe just by choosing the wrong name for it. Um, you know, we have all of this. I would also argue that if if Britain is if we follow Jeremy Black's conclusion to the endpoint, if Britain is the big scary throwing its weight around power. 
why are they so dedicated to bringing France in as an ally, as a constitutional monarchy, to balance against the Holy Alliance of absolutist states? Um, yeah, and just to kind of throw in, um, there is a fascinating uh, study on the uh, opposition to the war um, and uh, Troy Bickham, uh, Weight of Vengeance uh, is the title of the book, uh, which focuses uh, on popular perceptions of the war, contemporary perceptions, and then especially you know, based on the newspapers and kind of contemporary articles, reconstructing the sense sensibilities and 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 that war, you know, and I think it's in chapter seven, six or seven, that um, Troy um, kind of spends a lot of time pointing out the the depth and kind of the extent of the resistance within the British public to the sense of continuity of, of the war. Uh, and it's primarily, if we kind of look at it, it's, it's based on this, both opposition to the war, but also economic misery that the, the, the British public has been experiencing. And he does the same thing to the American side, and he shows that the, of all the Gonko attitudes, there was also significant opposition movement in the United States too, to the continue, to, to continuing the uh, uh, fighting against the British. If I can uh, make a comment about, I'm glad Luke uh, brought up the issue of identity because I don't want to uh, get through this uh, podcast without mentioning that, uh, in a sense, this was a second war of independence because it vindicated American sovereignty. But what I think uh, also ought to be uh, uh, kept in mind is it shapes an American identity. Uh, we get these uh, symbols from the war, sayings, don't give up the ship, we have met the enemy and they are ours. Uh, physical uh, artifacts, the USS Constitution, the Fort McHenry flag, and even living artifacts like uh, Andrew Jackson, who is a symbol of uh, the American identity at the end of the war. And I think all of these help shape uh, uh, what it means to be an American or what Americans think it means to be an American after 1815. And I think that's a very important aspect of how we forge a nation uh, uh, as a result of this war. That is a beautiful segue into precisely where I wanted to go next with this. So thank you very much for that, Don, which is about, you know, kind of nation building and identity and and Luke I know you want to dive straight in so far be it for me to, to hold you back go for it I, I first of all I uh, 100% agree with Don and I want to throw in um in, in on his sort of list of of relics uh the star-spangled banner right that poem emerges out of it and becomes our national anthem and we don't talk about the later verses uh <laughs> but um but yeah, no, that is that is uh, hugely important. Uh, before I jump into identity, I also want to throw just very very quickly mention, uh, in terms of war weariness and sort of we tend to view Britain as sort of this united block against Napoleon, um, but there are there's pushes everywhere. There's you know there's riots against and it yeah there's bread prices there's taxes there's all of that. There's also a whole radical movement right. Uh, there's a scholar here at UConn, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Sarah Winter. She's actually a, um, a literature scholar to begin with. She's writing a book on habeas corpus. And one of the things that she's arguing is that Napoleon is never let off Bellerophon because if he touches English soil, someone's going to file a writ of habeas corpus for him. And that's going to unleash a huge can of worms. Uh, so yeah, like there are people who are very willing to push that in Britain. Now, identity, national identity. Uh, I'll let Don really talk about the American side of this. 
But I do want to talk about something that that your listeners have heard about to a certain extent before on last on your last show. I don't know if it was the last show that's up as of the recording. I don't know if it's going to be the last show that's up before release of this one um, on the significant battles of the War of 1812 and the emergence of a Canadian national identity. Right now, war is a crucial part of the emergence of national identity. We've seen it as early, as far back as the Seven Years' War uh, in the American context. We've seen it in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, I would <laughs> Linda Colley, Holger Hook, um, little guy named Luke Reynolds, who's a hack. Don't listen to anything he says. Um, you know, all of this is going on. We start to see this in Canada. Uh, both in Upper Canada and Lower Canada, and and a united thing coming out of this. This whole America is is temporarily an enemy. It then eventually becomes you know crucial in terms of trade, crucial in terms of borders, all of that. Uh, but yeah, uh, one of the things I actually discovered in my research, and it's something I use in my lectures, uh, is a um, a medal by the guy uh, who did the Waterloo Medal and the Waterloo Bridge Medal. Uh, and it's called a beaver undismayed. And it's a commemorative medal of the War of 1812. Uh, and it is this really weird piece of art. It's it's a, one of the river borders. And on one side is the American eagle looking all puffy and huffy. And on the other side is a Canadian beaver hissing at it. And in the background is a very world weary British lion. Um, but it is, it's very much making the point this is, this was, you know, it was Canada who saw this off, right? It wasn't the British regulars. They're there as a backup, but it's Canada that drives this. And as your fellow guests, as the guests you've had on before have made this case, right, this becomes part of the foundation myth, especially of English-speaking Canada. French-speaking Canada, less so, but French-speaking Canada also still refers to the French and Indian War as the uh, War of Conquest, so we know how they feel about all of this. Uh, but it does very much drive this sentiment. I'll uh, I'll see if I can pull up Luke, that, that please medal. tell me, please tell me you have that medal. I don't have the medal. I have a photo of that medal. So give me a oh second. Oh my god! I, I want I want to see it. Yeah, yeah. Give me give me one second, and I'll I'll pull it up for us. There will now be a brief interlude whilst we all point and laugh at said image. Um, all right, Luke, uh, can you make sure uh, you email this to me so that I can. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Can you can you give me screen share permission? You should do already. All right, let's see. Yep, here we go. There it is, gentlemen. Upper Canada preserved. Uh, a beaver undismayed by the appearance of the American eagle, the British lion in the distance. Oh, this is this is perfect. <laughs> this is magnificent. Send that around to us, would you? Yeah, I will absolutely, I'll drop that in an email uh, right now. And it is by, as I said, Thomas Wyan, who does the Waterloo Medal and then the Waterloo Bridge Medal. Um, as far as I'm aware, this one is a, is, a is a commission from a Canadian organization. It's not a British medal, uh, but it is worth sort of noting. All right, I will send that image right now as either Alex Thank or Don drop in on this. Folks, social media is the place to go if you want to see that. Um, there'll be a tweet via the at White History account. Um, so you can enjoy that because that is quite something. Add, Please do, Don. Can I just add a little bit on the uh, effect of this war on Canada um, to Luke's uh, recitation there? It looks to me like there's a lag. Um, the Canadians sort of don't pay much attention to this war until the Dominion is launched in 1867. And then they seem to look back and say, my God, that's our war of independence. 
And so Brock emerges even as a greater hero, Tecumseh, the defense of Canada against uh, this aggressive United States. And I think uh, uh, that's sort of how this war is remembered thereafter, a Canadian uh, war of independence. Uh, there was a public opinion poll in Canada in 2000 that ranked the War of 1812 the third most important event in their history um, after the Dominion, the establishment of the Dominion, and then the uh, completion of the Canadian Pacific Railway, which united uh, Eastern and Western Canada. I don't know if the war looms quite as large nowadays, uh, 22 years after that poll, but it certainly looms larger in the Canadian public memory than in the U.S. memory because it's their war of independence. Where does Vimy Ridge land on that poll? Where does what? Vimy Ridge in World War One. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, you enough. can probably Google the poll and see. I don't know if they took events outside of uh, Canada. That's that's completely valid because that's the other, like that's the big, you know, the first uh, Canadian commanded and led uh, a World War One battle. And that's a huge part. Like if you go, if you go to um, uh, the Citadel in Quebec, they still have a stone cross to Vimy with the names of all the VCs they won there. I'll see if I can find that poll. I'm also interested in bringing the indigenous populations into this one and, and the impact that the, the War of 1812 has for them. And I have made this point on a series of shows, not just um, Josh Proven's one, but also the um, exclusive content for um, patrons of the show. Yes, there is a veiled, well, it's not really a veiled plug there, is there? Um, but my origins um, episode with Eddie Zimmerman talking about the origins of the American Revolution and this kind of sense that the Native American population seems to consistently end up backing the wrong side. It's a conversation that's currently going on in the Discord server for the show as well. This idea that it doesn't seem to matter which way the Native Americans look, they always end up getting the worst of all options time and time again. So let's just kind of unpick the legacy for the First Nations. Is this the point at which there's this kind of almost finality of they're on their own now? You know, the British haven't been able to, to help them. It's quite clear that the United States is looking West and will continue to look West. And therefore it's a case of trying to hold back the tide without really having the people or the material to do so. Don, can I bring you in first on that? Uh, that's the way it looks to me. I, I would not say they picked the wrong side. There is no right side for them. They can't stop the wave of American expansion. Um, and in most of these wars, you can find uh, from the colonial and uh, uh, early national period and later on, you can find uh, Indians on both, side, both sides. But this was a watershed in uh, the, uh, uh, the, the American Indian history in North America, because this is the last time they had a shot at winning. They had a major European ally. They would never have such an ally again. But I don't even think that mattered because at most they were gonna get some sort of reservation in the upper Midwest. And eventually the Americans are gonna push them off that. And you look at the fate of uh, uh, Indians in Canada, it was slower, but it was the same 
as the fate of American Indians. Even though you had a much slower expansion movement, you've got a much more benevolent government. The Indian population in the 19th century shrank. They ended up on uh, fairly uh, small reservations. Their fate was not unlike that of American Indians. Uh, it was just uh, the way things worked out uh, in the 19th century. But if they had any chance, it was in this war because this is the last time they had a major European ally. Yeah, I would I would jump in on that. I, you know, Don was saying uh, right at the beginning of this, right, that sort of the 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 Canadians win, the British win, the United States wins, everyone wins, everyone except the First Peoples, the Nat the Native Americans. They are the the unquestioned sort of losers in this, whether it's short term or long term. Uh, but I think Don is is 100% correct on the there is no right side, right? We can go back all the way to sort of the 1500s colonial wars. And, uh, you know, the allies in one war are the enemies in the next because they want that land, because they want that expansion. It, it, it's, it's, there's no way to win this. Alex, let me bring you in on this. Yeah, um, yeah, there is not much I can add uh, to what the gentleman already said, because the war was absolutely devastating uh, to the Native Americans. Um, if nothing else, the uh, Battle of the Horseshoe Bend in, in March of 1814, as part of the Creek War, uh, actually eliminates the Creek Nation as a, as a threat and, and, and clears the vast Mississippi Territory for the U.S. settlement. Um, and of course, Subsequent, you know, the, the struggle and death of Tecumseh also ends the prospect of any Native American alliance system or confederation emerging that can, can that could pose any um, obstacle to U.S. expansionism. Um, so, as you all three of you pointed out, the, the greatest, the biggest losers of this war are the Native Americans. Absolutely. Yeah. Look what happens to the to the Cherokee in Georgia. Right, the the Trail of Tears, the the quote unquote five civilized tribes, which is a deeply problematic name, um, but these are people that have done everything the way the U.S. wants them to do it, and they are still shoved off. If that's going to happen to them, what's going to happen to Native American nations that openly took up arms against the United States? I've always what I always tell my students is is. Um, you know, in the 19th century, for a large portion of the 19th century, uh, the the Secretary of State in charge of Indian Affairs is the Secretary of State for War, and that tells you all you need to know. Absolutely. So there is one final um, area that I want to probe on this. It has been a, a fascinating discussion, and that's memory. And we've talked already about memory for the USA and how they choose to, to utilize this over time. Um, we've also talked about how for the Brits, there's a very obvious solution to the War of 1812, which is to just forget it ever happened. But what we haven't talked about is the sort of forgotten war element. And Don, you know, you're, you're the go-to on this. Why? Why make this a forgotten war? Is this just that there are other shinier things for Britain and for the USA? that can be latched onto with the passage of time that therefore means that this becomes less key in terms of a, a kind of a, a story of key moments in, in a nation's history? Well, that probably is a pretty good 
argument right there. I, when uh, my first book, uh, first edition was published in 89 and I was looking for a subtitle and that's when I called it the forgotten conflict or a forgotten conflict. And I sort of wrestled with that because it seemed to me the legacy of the war was so profound and lasting. Um, why was it forgotten? And I guess there were uh, a number of reasons for that. Uh, the opposition to the war, about a third of the uh, American people opposed it, but actually opposition is the norm in American wars, not the exception. World War II without opposition is the exception. So that really couldn't be central. But you had these, it was bookmarked by these two really consequential wars, uh, the revolution and the civil war. And I think it was the civil war which really did in the sort of place that both the uh, uh, War of 1812 and the Mexican War had in the public memory. That was just such a huge and consequential war that I think it just pushed these two other for these two foreign wars that had preceded it sort of into the deeper recesses of the American memory. And, and, and there they have remained ultimately ever since. They got a, we got a boost for the War of 1812 during the bicentennial because there were so many public events from roughly, oh, I would say 1810 to 18, or uh, uh, 2010 to 2016. But after that, I think it sort of slipped back into the uh, recesses of our public memory. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that uh, on a fundamental level. Uh, I just to just to reinforce the whole, you know, the, the Civil War dominates everything. And all you need to do is look at the uh, the military history section of an American bookstore to uh, to realize that. Um, but just to, to go even further back, uh, one of my one of my own sort of pet uh, things is evacuation day which is a, a New York State-based commemoration for the day the last uh, British troops left New York City at the end of the American Revolution, right? It's <laughs> it's the last chopper out of, chopper out of Saigon uh, for the American Revolution. Um, and that was a big deal in, in New York State, a public holiday until the Civil War. And then it's taken over by Thanksgiving. It's folded into Thanksgiving. So it's not just even the War of 1812, but something as, as deeply ingrained as the American Revolution that's sort of folded in to that, um, yeah, no, I think I think that's that's absolutely right, you know. And there's also the you know there's the the problem on both sides in the aftermath of the Civil War that suddenly you've got to face American heroes from 1812 and Mexican American War who are trying to kill each other, right? Who are on separate sides of this, uh, and it complicates a huge amount of legacy in that. Um, in terms of Britain. We've I've talked about this, right? You know, even if even if, yeah, there are, there are events that they would that they probably would have commemorated things like the defense of Canada, things like that. That you can't really commemorate a successful blockade, but it is a very useful piece of military technology, uh, strategy rather. Um, but New Orleans sort of puts an end to that, and so they they immediately seize on Waterloo and push that much higher and in in all in all honesty the napoleonic wars had a had a much bigger impact for the average britain right no one you you look at let's say the invasion scares of the first decade of the, of the 19th century no one is worried in the war of 1812 that an american force is going to show up in ireland or in cornwall right no that there's nothing like that and so uh you know i think i think it's partially partially a drive to to cherry pick the victories 
and it's partially just a simple drive to let's let's talk about what's mo more important here that drives it. I just want to to follow up on what what Don was saying before. I didn't want to interrupt uh, your very beautiful segue, Zach. Um, but in terms of you know the the Canadian uh, identity taking a while, right? Picking it, you know, picking up steam. I think that's a point really well taken, and I think that's a crucial point to just to remind all of your listeners. And again, I'm I'm. I'm on my high horse, if you will, right? That this, you know, national memory is something that is curated and it is created. Um, and Canada and the War of 1812 is a really perfect example of that, right? It, it is sort of cherry picked out. Um, and we have our, you know, we have, it's building off of, off of things, right? Yeah, you can see, if you look at the 1837 rebellions in Canada, uh, upper and lower, um, there are people involved in that who are pro-Canadian independence who get that idea from the War of 1812, right? They're fighting, they're developing that national identity. But on a on a governmental level, on a push level, it is something that is then curated uh, and put together in, in a later time period. Gents, it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, we managed to keep it under two and a half hours, which is deeply impressive, quite frankly. Um, I just want to wrap up by encouraging folks to go and have a look at your works, because if the caliber of this conversation hasn't encouraged them to think, hey, I need to go and read more, not only on this, but, you know, what these guys are, are writing about more generally than frankly, I don't know what will. So, Alex, um, we're talking Kutuzov, A Life in War and Peace, and The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, both published by Oxford University Press. Which there is together either. are uh, more pages than either of the other of us have ever produced. <laughs> this, is, this is certainly true. Um, but also there's Berezina, 1812, and Confronting Napoleon, Levin von Benningsen's memoir of the campaign in Poland, 1806-7, both published by Hellion. Folks, Google will, will take you directly where you need to be. Um, Don? We are talking The War of 1812, A Forgotten Conflict, The War of 1812, Writings from America's Second War of Independence, Glorious Victory, Andrew Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans. And I know we'll be looking forward to Tecumseh's War hitting the bookshelves at some point in the hopefully not too distant future. And last but by no means least, Luke, uh, Who Owned Waterloo, published by Oxford University Press. Folks, you'll pick that one up very easily. Um, and I, I thoroughly... Just to just to add to that, I also have a uh, a chapter coming out. Speaking of Hellion, uh, in the latest Society for Army Historical Research collection, uh, a little bit more cheerful. Uh, but if you want to read my take on satires of dandified army officers post Waterloo, that's in there. I suspect you and I need to have a conversation about that. Don, I would I, love to. I can mention one other. It's in a way my favorite book. Uh, after my first on the War of 1812. It's called Don't Give Up the Ship, Myths of the War of 1812. That was a lot of fun to write. And I, I think it uh, uh, is, uh, at least some readers would find it uh, uh, interesting. There you go, folks. Lots for you to be spending your um, Christmas gatherings and takings, should you have been given um, gift cards and, and vouchers and all the rest of it over the course of the Christmas period. Luke, Don, and Alex, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having thank us, you. Zach. It was a pleasure. It's been great fun. 
Folks, remember what I said at the start. Please remember to like, subscribe and share with a friend. Three simple things that make a huge difference. If you're particularly loving the show, why not head over to Apple Podcasts where you can leave a five-star review and make sure you add a comment as well so that I can get your feedback on what's working on the show. As ever, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. You can get your hands on bonus content, hours upon hours of um, additional material, episodes on uh, the Marshalls, on the American Revolution, exclusive chats uh, on a wide range of things, in addition to a whole host of perks. Make sure that you avail yourself of those benefits if you are inclined. Obviously, I completely understand that that may not be for everybody, and whatever support you're able to give, it means a huge amount, whatever form it takes. Particular shout-outs. Those who are mentioned in dispatches are Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Andrew Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, and James Fluick. The Admirals are David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, and Michael Guest. The Marshals are Rory Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, David Maxwell, and Juo Teixeira. The Emperor, that's J.C. Kaiser, and the Legion of Scholars, Liam Telfer and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. A very Merry Christmas to you all. And as always, thank you for listening. (laughs) 